Welcome to the CKNW Weekend Morning Show Podcast. I'm Sterling Fox, and today, Empathy Inc. President Mo Desianian looks at the impact of inflation on Canadians and sees anger, frustration, fear, and helplessness for a tough year ahead. Opposition finance critic Peter Millibar looks at the B.C. government's new half-billion-dollar renter protection fund. And UBC researcher Dr. Corey Nislow gives us an update on the East in Space portion of the Artemis Project, which is, so far, a success. So, let's get started. This coming Monday, January 16th, is considered Blue Monday, commonly known as the most depressing part of the year. Oh, goody, something to look forward to after the weekend. Uh, This year, by the way, we're now facing another challenge across the country, inflation. And a new study by Empathy Inc. shows that Canadians are feeling angry, frustrated, fearful, and helpless as a result. Here to talk more about it is the guy who commissioned the study. Mo Desianian is the president of Empathy Inc., joining us from Toronto. Mo, good morning, and thanks for getting up and joining us on the show today. Good morning, Sterling. Thanks for having me. Well, good to have you with us. What was the, uh, the, 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 the thrust of the survey? What was the reason for it in the first place? And were you surprised by your findings? Yeah, that's a good question. So what made us, what made us do the poll was because Blue Monday is around the corner, you said, and it's, it's Blue Monday is a combination of, of uh, you know, giving up on your New Year's resolutions and credit card bills are doing the weather. But this year is particularly hard, as you said. So we wanted to figure out really quickly how people are actually coping with the hardships of the inflation. And uh, as you said, we, we found out there's three main ways that people are reacting to it. They're angry and frustrated. They're fearful of it. Or they feel helpless. And there's three ways they're coping with it. They're fighting, they're flying, or uh, they're freezing, just like it is with, uh, with most extreme situations or most hardships, we go back to our sort of primary responses. We fly, we fight, or we freeze. And that's, uh, there's a lot of interesting findings there for sure. Interesting. So one of the things that uh, ta- that kind of jumped off the page at Mimo when I was looking at the results or the pricey of the results was that it, you, you broke it down to anger and frustration or fear mm-hmm. and helplessness, those three categories. But by far mm-hmm. and away, the strongest number came with anger, 73%. And this goes back to a, a, a lot of, uh, there's a lot of anger across Canada, uh, indignation, uh, frustration, all sorts of other verbs, but uh, that's, that's what people are feeling. So talk to us about, did you ask why they were angry and, and what did they tell you? Yeah, I think we broke down sort of this, these feelings of indignation on a scale. So you, you, you're, angry, you're angry, frustrated, and I think in the, probably what is the most Canadian thing to reply back to a poll, most people say, we're not actually angry, we're just frustrated. Mm-hmm. Uh, which uh, which I find uh, humorous in that sense. I think one of the things that's very important here is people's response is very much dependent on their situation in life. So what we find is all the older generations are more angry, right? Versus younger generations, um, they tend to feel a little bit more helpless and a little bit more uh, fearful. 
right? And that's because there's a number of factors there. For example, order generations have already been through periods of high inflation. True. They've already experienced that in the 80s and the 90s mm-hmm. and the 70s, depending on your age. The younger generations, 3,500, they haven't. They were just not making financial, or either not around or not making financial decisions at that time, right? Uh, the next thing is older generations have a little bit more financial security. Maybe they paid off their mortgage. Maybe they don't have to take care of their kids anymore. Maybe they don't have a career that they're tied to in a, in a way that, let's say, a 40-year-old is, uh, and they might be close to retirement. Maybe they don't have to sort of you know, ch- chase the next paycheck. So they're not necessarily fearful or helpless. Uh, but they're just frustrated. Right. Frustrated that they have to go and pay more at the grocery store, you know, pay more to travel or pay more to do anything. So, so that's, that's the, yeah. No, I, I, in terms of the anger, though, particularly as you've identified the the, the and breaking the the demographics down into age groups, identifiable age groups. If the older, shall we say, those more experienced who have seen eighteen, nineteen, twenty percent interest rates in their lifetime, and now dealing with seven percent, which is causing a lot of younger people to just set their hair on fire. A lot of people going seven percent. My gosh, I can remember seventeen not too long ago. So if those people, what what are they angry about? I think it's just the frustration of the price increase. The other interesting demographic to note here, though, Sterling, is people who've experienced inflation somewhere else. We have quite a few people, immigrants in Canada, who in their home country have experienced 20%, 40% inflation, hyperinflation. Now they're coming to Canada, including my dad, for example. When I talk to him about inflation, he's like, oh, friend, you haven't seen anything yet. I come from the Middle East where inflation sits at a comfortable 45% for decades, right? Um, So it's like, yeah, 7%, that's nothing. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think the way people are coping with that and what they're frustrated by is going, things like groceries, for example. Almost 80% of Canadians are frustrated with the hike in grocery prices. Sure. But why is that? Because... Groceries is a very tactile expense, right? Your Netflix account and your mortgage and all of those other things kind of go out of your bank account automatically, Mm -hmm. right? But your groceries, you have to show up, you have to haul the stuff into the bin, and then you have to sort of either pay in cash or prove the money physically going out of your account. Right. And then you get a confirmation that you paid 10, 20, whatever percent is uh, more for groceries, this week than you did last week in the forms of a very long receipt that you have to crumble and put in your pocket. It's a very visceral relationship we have with groceries. And that makes for a very angry and frustrated person to have to go in every week uh, and just pay a little bit more and look at that receipt every day. Uh, Everything else kind of flies under the radar for us, doesn't it? Sure. And of the three uh, reactions or the three sensations that Canadians are feeling the most, anger, fear, and helplessness, fear, uh, let's deal with that for a, a bit, Mo, because uh, if, if you've got a mortgage up for renewal this year, you're pretty nervous. And I think a lot of people are a little beyond nervous. Many of them are just, uh, frankly, afraid that they're not going to be able to, to hold the deal together and afford those new payments. I, I talk r- routinely here on the show about a friend of mine in the area who had his mortgage renewed and it went up by a mm-hmm. thousand bucks a month. Now he's in a oh position, he's, he, he's in a position, thankfully in his life where he can afford that. But mm-hmm. you know, if, if, if you aren't, then you're hooped, aren't you? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And that affects young people uh, so much more. People who are just bought a home. People who are even 35 and under, 59% of them say they're nervous about the rising cost. They're insecure. This, this feeling of fear is sort of the second most common thing, uh, the second most common feeling that Canadians have. Mm-hmm. Um, and 
it's worrying, right? It's a bit worrying. Now, it is worrying because <clears throat> people that are financially in, in more sort of vulnerable positions uh, tend to be more afraid. Like, for example, one of the things we found, and this is a very interesting one, uh, women are more, are more uh, insecure and fearful about the inflation and rising costs than men are, hmm. right? On the surface, that's sort of a interesting fact. When you dig deeper is women significantly more report that they are not making financial decisions unilaterally, hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So men... Um, say that they're in charge of finance, major financial decisions in their life, say vacations, home buying, unilaterally so. They're independently making that decision. Women, the majority of women don't or report that they don't, right? So that's a function of financial sort of vulnerability, financial dependence, right? right? So that makes you naturally, that would make anybody, regardless of gender, more nervous about rising costs. If you're not, right? Um, so this, this fear is heightened in sort of the vulnerable population, people who are disadvantaged in any shape or form. And that leads to helplessness, the third uh, sentiment that you were able to identify. And talk a little bit about that, please. Yeah, absolutely. So that is very, very much a um, uh, dominant in the very young population, 35 under, 61% of them say they feel helpless, right? Again, that's because they're in the there, they just don't know. They haven't experienced it before. They don't know what to do with it. They may be at the cusp of the beginning of their career, um, so they don't have the full job security. By the way, confidence in the labor market is not very high either. Only 5% say that they can go and um, get a more high-paying job. That's because there's news of layoffs everywhere right now. Yeah. Right? So it's not how people are trusting. Like, yeah, well, I'll just go get a better-paying job. That doesn't work there. So young people are feeling very, very helpless. Uh, and the vulnerable populations, too. So let's talk about flight, because uh, you, you talk about how Canadians are coping with inflation, and you mentioned mm-hmm. flight, fight, and freeze. We've only got a couple of minutes left, but can you blitz through those three uh, uh, approaches or uh, uh, attacks that some Canadians are taking by way of dealing with the inflation reality we all face? Oh, absolutely. So flight, that's about saving costs. Uh, that's about making to... Um, Sorry, I got that immediately and quickly. I'm going to revert back to that. <laughs> uh, yeah, so it's about, sorry, it's about saving costs. So 87% sure. say they want to save costs, right? That's about groceries. That's about all of that. Fighting is about getting a better job. Not a lot of confidence there, right? The, 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 the confidence to go to the labor market and say, I can get a better job, it's not quite there. And freeze, that's about the vulnerable population. That's people who say they already can't keep up with their bills. They're freezing up. They don't know what else to do. Interesting fact, they're more likely to give up the essential groceries, uh, vacation, uh, sorry, groceries and utilities and medicals in favor of taking the vacation, taking time off. So um, they're going to try to cut costs on groceries. They're going to cut costs on their medical bills. They're going to cut costs on all of those. But they're not going to cut the cost on their vacation and their time off, even though they can't already keep up with their, uh, with their bills currently. That's, so that's interesting priorities, right? Well, it's the vulnerable population. Right? Sure. They're all going to get there. Um, they're going to prioritize different things, right? So that's something that people have to really pay attention to. Inflation. Uh, does really affect the ones that are already 
not doing so well way more proportionally because they have a different relationship with their finances than the ones that are comfortable. Interesting stuff. Great survey and a a really fine analysis of it for us this morning, Mo. Thanks very much for doing this. And uh, Empathy, uh, I've got the website right in front of me here. Let me me commend it to our listeners. (laughs) Empathyinc.ca is where you'll find lots more about Mo, the kid who skipped cartoons to watch the commercials, and, uh, and his company, and this particular survey. Thanks very much. Thank you for having me. The provincial government has announced plans to create a $500 million fund that will enable nonprofits to buy older rental buildings in our province rather than allowing those buildings to be sold to developers. It's called the Rental Protection Fund, and the strategy is to keep buildings away from speculators, developers, and large corporations. That is the mission statement behind this $500 million fund. Here to talk about it this morning is the ML. LA for Kamloops North Thompson, the uh, shadow finance minister, the opposition critic Peter Millibar on the line to talk about the renter protection subsidy. Mr. Millibar, Peter, good morning and welcome. Good morning. Thanks for having me on. It was good to have you with us. If you were the finance minister of British Columbia this morning, Peter, would we be talking about you having signed off on this? Are you on side with this idea? Well, I think there would be a lot more detail in place uh, than what we saw announced by uh, the Premier. So this is a man who has spent the better part of the last three years either being the housing minister or or the Premier, and uh, no actual detail on a program like this. And so, you know, what is the actual number of units hoping to be accomplished by this? Uh, What is the speed at which a nonprofit will be able to turn around an application with this uh, unformed, yet-to-be-formed a group that's going to be in charge of the $500 million and the disbursement, because if you're a nonprofit, you can't afford to wait months waiting for a government approval as other uh, purchasers are lining up trying to convince the seller to sell to them. And mm-hmm. so, um, you know, a lot of unknown. I mean, simple math would say even if even if it was $250,000 a unit subsidy to the nonprofit to offset the purchase price, uh, that's only 2,000 units of housing uh, for the whole province. And so... You know, I think we have to look at this with a with a little bit of skepticism in terms of uh, what else are, is the government going to try to rush out the door without a proper plan for spending uh, with their un, unexpected $5 billion extra of taxpayers' money to work with. And I have to tell you, Mr. Millibar, the reason we called you, uh, rather than the uh, opposition housing critic, Peter, is because it's $500 million. It's half a billion bucks. This is something that would have had to been signed off by the finance minister. It's a huge number. Where's the money coming from? Well, my understanding is this is part of the the unfound or unexpected five billion dollars of, of uh, now surplus okay. uh, that's really built on uh, an overabundance of uh, personal income tax and corporate income taxes that the government wasn't expecting to see come in. And so, on the one hand, they've overtaxed the uh, UI and everyone else and, and corporations to the tune of five to seven billion dollars this year. Um, now they're scrambling because if they don't get it uh, accounted for or into into pots of funds um, before March 31st, it has to, by law, go up against our, our deficit or our debt payments. So, um, you know, this is the worry now. Over the next two and a half months, we're going to see a flurry of announcements like this. But the NDP have been uh, very good at making big, splashy announcements, uh, very poor on telling us what exactly they're hoping to accomplish and timelines and and what would be considered a success or not. So 
for the premier not to have any idea on, on um, you know, what the success would be of this program. It's been noted that the building they stood in front of for the announcement apparently had just sold recently for $125 million. That would be a quarter of the fund for one building right there. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, it really does beg the question, um, um, you know, is, is basically Premier Eby going to be blowing through uh, $5 billion on, on whims here without any really um, good, solid uh, results for the taxpayers of British Columbia? Well, and, you know, the cynic in me says uh, there's more to this than just the announcement and uh, that you're right, that they are saying the fund will be operational in the coming months and will be financed by March 31st, which, as you mentioned, is critical in terms of, of uh, debt payments and, uh, and, and organizing the finances. But the cynic in me says the timing is more than a little suspicious. Now, Mr. Eby has said he's not particularly interested in advancing the uh, impending federal ele- uh, provincial election date. Uh, it's going to go next year at the appointed day. However, a lot of people are speculating that this is, in fact, a preamble to a snap election later this year, possibly later in the spring. What are your sentiments on that, Peter? Are you suspicious? Well, absolutely. I, I, I think the Premier is definitely looking at ways to make sure any and every uh, available election window is open for him. Uh, whether or not he triggers that election or not, I guess the uh, the jury is still out on that. But, you know, it, it really comes down to a, a lack of, of accountability deliverable with them. As I say, this is a government who handpicked their own BC Housing Board, uh, dumped a, a ton of money into BC Housing, uh, finally had uh, accountability and, and uh, issues there, had to fire their board, had to uh, start a, uh, a forensic audit on BC Housing. And while all of that's happening right now, we have another half a billion dollars being dumped into housing, but that's going to be managed by a, a completely brand new uh, set of trustees in the board um, that still haven't been even named yet. And so, um, you know, it's really about the speed uh, that they're trying to make these announcements without proper accountability for the dollars. Um, you know, once these are spent, you can't get them back. And this is not a year-over-year program. Uh, the government has indicated this is a one-time injection of $500 million. Right. Um, and so, you know, like I say, the number of units that this could reasonably impact is going to be very minimal at, at best. If you, as you suggest, if there's another layer of bureaucracy with this new Housing Protection Fund Society that's going to run the show for this half a billion dollars, is that not also an extra layer of bureaucracy, Peter, that's going to soak up a significant portion of that money. Well, absolutely it is. And and if they're doing their proper due diligence before they release uh, taxpayers' funds into something like a, a real estate deal, um, you know, that's going to slow down the, the process of, of the nonprofit uh, getting the approval or not. Uh, they would need to know whether they have those government funds, uh, either for the full amount of the purchase or a partial purchase, and then uh, get the rest from a different financial institution. If you're the seller, you have other people in the background presumably wanting to buy the building that probably aren't going to sit around and wait months on end for a government program to say yes or no. Um, and, you know, this is uh, this is rental housing, which really the value of the rental housing gets de- determined based on a, a formulation of, of uh, rents being collected and, and what the cost and the rate of return and all of that. So it's almost like a, a more of a a corporate commercial uh, uh, valuation than, say, URI's homes would be in terms of a, a real estate transaction. And so it's not like the nonprofits are going to suddenly find these great bargains. When the premier starts saying that he, he thinks that uh, people that own these buildings that want to sell will, 
Were we doing the right thing and taking less money if it's going to a nonprofit versus a, a, a different landlord? Um, you know, that's a, that's a pretty tenuous way to try to develop housing policy, hoping that the generosity of existing uh, owners is going to come into play and they're going to take a, a under market value simply uh, on a sale. They could be doing that right now and they're not. Why would they suddenly do it with this government fund in place? So what would you have done differently? How would a Liberal government have addressed this issue, Peter? Well, I think you need to address the actual issue, and that is uh, rent evictions and demo evictions and, and uh, making sure that there's a proper program in place for those people that are, are being displaced by, by demo evictions especially, but rent evictions as well, in terms of being treated fairly, in terms of making sure that they have um, appropriate housing access, that their, their rents don't skyrocket on something that is uh, of no fault of their own. Yeah. Uh, there was a half a billion dollars, apparently, to work with, and instead of working with it, um, they're going to uh, try to inject it in on, on the purchase side of the equation instead of actually uh, trying to figure out a way to actually work with renters. And, uh, but uh, I guess that's not surprising given that this is a government that's two elections now has promised renters rebates for all renters and has uh, failed to materialize that as well. Interesting. Peter, should Vancouver and B.C. have cannabis consumption lounges or bars? That's our question of the day. What do you think? Uh, well, I, I, I grew up and, and ran nightclubs and bars and, and liquor stores, so I've had a bit of perspective on this. You know, I, I, probably in, in the next 15 to 20 years, you're going to see things evolve to that. I think we're still in the early days of this whole, um, and, you know, legalization, and, and especially around cannabis and cannabis stores and products. Uh, you know, I think as, as people come to realize that that's, uh, you know, a safe supply in terms of, uh, the cannabis, and, and they know what they're getting. They know the quality control that goes into the product. You'll see them more and more going to, to government-run stores or the private stores that, that have those uh, verified products. But I think we're still in the, the infancy stage of all of this. Uh, Not quite yet, huh? Cannabis. Yeah. I, I would be surprised at this point if there was okay. really even a business case for it. But I, I can see in 15 years or so as, as the as the you know habits of people and consumers change over time uh, with legal cannabis stores, uh, that, that uh, the demand would maybe uh, start to build then. Thanks for jumping in on our question of the day, Peter. Good to have you on the show this morning. Thanks very much. You bet, anytime. Our friends over at Global TV have been having a lot of fun with yeast in space, ace, ace, the last few days, talking about this incredible story from UBC. A pleasure to say good morning and welcome back, and congratulations to Dr. Corey Nislow, who is a cell biologist and professor at UBC and the lead Artemis project researcher, uh, talking about yeast in space. Dr. Nislow, Corey, good morning and welcome back, sir. Well, well, thank you. Uh, Good morning, and it's great to be back. Thank you for having me. Uh, It's our pleasure entirely. You sent a shoebox-sized container of samples of yeast and algae aboard that uh, Artemis One rocket. It was unmanned, but it made it all the way to outer space and splashed down safely. And your experiments uh, were deemed successful, A, because they made it back, and you've (laughs) you've, you've had a chance to take a look at them. Are you satisfied or even a tiny bit surprised by any of the results you know um sterling i was thinking what's the best way to describe uh uh the my my own and my lab's feelings um um these days and uh i was thinking of the song what a long strange trip it's been Hmm. uh because so to answer your question we uh, we were really very pleasantly surprised um 
when I got to uh, Kennedy Space Center to, and saw that arc, um, the um, experimental setup was full of grown yeast, um, it, it immediately told us that the experiment, the, for all intents and purposes, the experiment worked. Mm-hmm. Everyone, everyone grew, and they were happy. Um, and the temperature and the humidity was spot on. So, you know, these guys were little pathfinders um, for the crew that's going to go and um, go up in Artemis II in about a year and a half. Because um, if they didn't su- uh, survive and thrive, then um, crew members certainly wouldn't be able to. Right. And Artemis, ultimately, of course, Corey, is about human beings not just returning to the moon, but returning moon to the moon, rather, to essentially stay a while. And one of the big concerns, even in transit, to say nothing of staying there, is cosmic radiation and, and its effects on human beings. What were you able to determine with your yeast samples, for example, about cosmic radiation? Well, um, I have to uh, just give a little bit of caveat that the, what we will be determining uh, uh, is is uh, a little ways into the future because okay. what we've done is um, these uh, our six thousand different yeast mutants and our ten thousand different algae mutants they they grew they came back but um, certain mutants. Uh, will definitely have grown better, or and and some will have grown worse mm. than others, and so that's what we're going to be doing over the next, um, dare I say, year year and a half is individually decoding using whole genome sequencing who survived, the, who thrived. It, essentially, we're asking who was the most. And when we are uh, being able to determine that will then allow us to say these are the genes that are most important for surviving that cosmic radiation that you just mentioned. And it also has earthbound applications, too, doesn't it, Dr. Nislow, with the ability of, uh, in, in terms of understanding the effects of radiation that could ultimately benefit humans undergoing radiation therapies of all different sorts here on Earth. Well, you know, it's it's really a, such a basic uh, issue of the more you know, the better able you're uh, you are to uh, deal with challenges. And radiation therapy, as you just mentioned, is a challenge mm-hmm. because what you're trying to do is is walk this knife edge of uh, irradiate cancer cells so that you kill them and they don't proliferate, but leave the non-cancerous cells as unharmed as possible. And so uh, what the genes that uh, come up in our yeast experiments and our algae experiments will definitely point the way towards which human genes we should be focusing on. And this is a little bit, well, five years ago, this would have been science fiction. Mm -hmm. But once the yeast point to human genes we should be focusing on, we can then, using CRISPR and these new DNA editing technologies, hopefully tweak those genes in human cells to make them better able to withstand the insult of radiation. Yeah, that's a good point, because, of course, a lot of humans will tell you that, yes, I've had radiation therapy, and boy, did it take a round out of me. I'm not, still not quite the same. Uh, and, and it's just it's a byproduct, isn't it? It's just that simple. 
It is because, you know, cancer therapy, although cancer therapies, you know, are getting better and better every year. Mm -hmm. At the end of the day, what you're doing is you're pushing cells to the brink. And the hope is that the cancer cells, because they're unstable, fall over the edge, whereas normal cells don't. But the, the better we understand the process, the better we're able to you know, use things like nutrition use uh, and, and um, medications to help. Uh, yeah, as you said, a radiation treatment packs a wallop and the recovery is long. And so uh, the, the more we're able to understand the process, the better able we'll, help, we'll be able to help individuals recover better and faster. Indeed. I saw you talking on television the other day about how this is going to keep your students really busy for quite some time. Well, and, and it's all about the DNA in the yeast and identifying, as you said earlier, what what was successful and what didn't make the cut, so to speak. Exactly. And Sterling, this is the exciting, one of the really exciting aspects of this project is I, you know, I, I'm a, a product of the Apollo generation. Mm-hmm, me too. Um, and, uh, and, and now we're talking about, you know, we have four Canadian astronauts who are, who are part of the Artemis generation. And I like to think that our yeast and algae are also part of that generation because you remember from, from Apollo, we, we brought back some amazing rocks. Sure. And we're still studying them. But, you know, rocks are rocks, and they don't divide, and they don't continue to proliferate. Mm-hmm. We're, we've spent the past week um, archiving all of these yeast and algae and continuing to grow them such that long after I'm retired, um, uh, these yeast will still be contributing because any researcher across Canada or the world can access these, um, these yeast and use techniques that, frankly, in 2016, when we were first designing this project, use techniques to code the DNA that didn't even exist in 2016. So um, it, uh, these model organisms have always been great ways to push the limits. Interesting stuff. And a final question to you, Dr. Nislow, is uh, you mentioned going down to the, the Space Center and, and uh, being so overjoyed to find everything worked and made it back in, a, in, in fine shape. Uh, I'm curious about the audience that is, is available to you. How many people, uh, and because you're in contact with your colleagues literally around the planet, the interest yeah. level on this must be incredibly high. You know, it, it, you know we're, we're, uh, scientists can, can be sort of... Um, you know, whole thing, hold their emotions close to the chest. But Sterling, uh, folks are really excited. And we have plans to go to Japan this summer to simulate cosmic radiation to mm. do further testing. And so, you know, it's, a, it's an iterative process. It, we keep learning. And to answer your question, everyone is really excited. And I have T-shirts printed up for the entire team, and I have to order a second batch. 
<laughs> That's always a good sign when you run out of merch and you need to, you need to go for round two. Corey, thanks ever so much for doing this. We invited you back in front of lots of witnesses several weeks ago, and you, you very kindly agreed, and it's just a real treat to have you come back and, and describe more about the, especially now that it's over and proven to be uh, such a success. Congratulations again to you and all of your team, and I look forward to, to further conversations about further findings. I would love it, and I'd love to send you a T-shirt as well. So thank you so much for having us. Our pleasure. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts or listen to us live, 6 to 9, weekend mornings. I'm Sterling Fox. Have a great week. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance (laughs) recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.